This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Shannon Kelly, a licensed professional counselor and certified addiction counselor with the Family Care Center. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network resource of the week, Homefront Cares. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'll be talking about how to communicate deployments or absences due to military service to your children. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and that can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to FCCSprings.com and allow our family to care for your family. On today's Insights into the Military Mind, I'd like to talk about one thing that may be difficult about deployments, breaking the news to kids. If we're anticipating an absence due to military service, it may be tempting to say, Daddy's going to be going away for a while, but don't worry, here's a new puppy. Probably not the best way to break the news to your kids about an upcoming deployment, but don't think my wife and I hadn't thought about using it. Looking back on it, we may have inadvertently done so as we now share our space with two dogs and three cats, but the accumulation of pets was independent of deployments. But how often do we want to soften the blow of an upcoming departure with an amazing gift that takes a sting away? One of the most challenging things that my wife and I found about our deployments was telling our kids that I was going to be leaving. Especially at the height of the operational tempo several years ago, it was as if it was a never-ending revolving door. My first deployment in Iraq was 2006. My daughter was in first grade and my son was in kindergarten. My last deployment, the fourth during this time, happened in 2013 and they were in middle school. Not only that, they were old hands at the deployment and dad leaving game by this time, but it didn't make it any easier. The problem is the need of explanation changes as kids age. Maybe when they were younger, it might have been easier because the why question were answered by he's leaving to make sure the bad guys stay over there and don't come over here or something to that effect. Well, that argument may fly with a five-year-old who hasn't experienced this before. Try using that as an explanation to a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. Again, they've been through this and their level of understanding is greater. Not only that, in our children's mind, what is much more immediate is much more important. There are also times when things become more absolute. My daughter's birthday is in January, and my son's birthday in August, and my son's birthday is in August. And it always seemed to be that the Army kept me at home around the holidays, but deployed me over the summer. Between 2006 and 2013, I missed my son's birthday five times, but only missed my daughter's birthday twice. Of those five missed birthdays, three of them were in a row. Therefore, on subsequent Dad's Deploying Again conversations, my son's first reaction was, Dad's going to miss my birthday again. While that always wasn't true, it was true more often than not and can easily translate into an absolute dad's never here for my birthday. These are the kind of things that we as parents need to be aware of and how it can impact our children. So how do we have these conversations? 
As with many different things in our relationships, getting on the same page is certainly the best answer. If my wife and I were to respond to my son's thought that I'm missing his birthday with, yep, sure is, nothing we can do about it, that really doesn't soften the blow very much. Instead, making sure that we're both communicating about how and when we're going to tell him was very important. You also have to tell your message to the situation and age of your children. Our two are 18 months apart and experience the deployment simultaneously. If you have a family with a 12-year-old, 8-year-old, and 5-year-old, it's likely that the 12-year-old has gone through this before, but the 5-year-old hasn't. You can't explain the situation to a 12-year-old as if you were talking to a 5-year-old, and vice versa. I recommend that you have the conversation in stages. First, breaking the news. Decide on when and where to share the news. Start off with the kids together and break the news. Maybe one parent takes the little one to play for a little bit, and the other parent talks to the older two a bit more to answer any questions or concerns and console them if needed. Next, answer questions or ask questions. Maybe your eight-year-old has gone through the deployment cycle once. Ask them what it was like for them. What's different now than it was last time? And the same for the older child. Listen to them. Allow them to talk about previous times. Have a deeper and more meaningful conversation with the oldest. What was it like for you when you first heard that dad was leaving? Do you think the youngest may be feeling that way now? What questions do you have that I might be able to answer? Then take some family time. Make some time to connect with the oldest child to hang out for a while. Go to the store. Take the family to get ice cream. Sort of a shade of the puppy scenario, but what the heck. As you can see, this is more of a deliberate and in-depth approach than the old dad's taking off again scenario. It takes planning, patience, and yes, courage to look our kids in the eye and have a challenging but important conversation. Having a plan and a conversation with your children can make other challenging times easier. If you can communicate this, you can communicate just about anything. So I'm glad to share some of these insights. Do you agree? Disagree? It would be great to hear your thoughts. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Today's interview segment is with Shannon Kelly, a licensed professional counselor and certified addiction counselor with the Family Care Center. Shannon was raised in Colorado Springs with the military family and understood the challenges that families can face in this community. She started working with substance abuse and through the years transitioned into the focus of trauma. She currently works with the needs of trauma, depression, anxiety, and addiction. Let's get into my conversation with Shannon and come back afterwards to talk about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So you've been with the Family Care Center for a number of years, and when I was getting started as a counselor, we used to run groups together for justice-involved veterans, and later you were leading the PHP program that we used to host. I'm interested to hear how you became a mental health professional and what led you to work with service members, veterans, and their families. So I always tell people, everybody asks, like, how did you fall into this like profession, right? And I kind of go there this like circle of like where you fall into things sometimes and like how life just leads you in different directions. Like when I was in college, always knew I wanted to help people and always had that service-minded type of mentality. I ended up majoring in psychology where you don't really do much when you get a bachelor's in psychology. So I worked at the library and then I actually started my career September of 2001 Mm. so entered into like working at DHS like just a couple weeks after September 11th and so it was like my entire career has been in that like service-minded social work and therapy but when I look back at it I never realized that it was like literally like that was the moment that I started my career Mm. in some ways too but I was working at DHS for about seven years um 
the Department of Human Services and was working with a lot of families that were just in poverty, but, you know, just social work, which then led to a lot of families that were in the military and helping out, at that time, substance abuse families. Um, and it just led into this, and I was like, okay, I, I really like doing this, and I want to do more of that helping very specifically. And that's when I decided to go into the therapy side of it instead of the social work side, which then led to substance abuse because that was a natural progression from working at Department of Human Services. And then Danya, our esteemed colleague, called and said, hey, the Family Care Center at that time, Haven, was looking for somebody to help with substance abuse with the veteran and military population. And that, you know, kind of that as you just fall into things and opportunity knocks and and I have and I grew up in a military family, so it was kind of that like, oh, this is a great opportunity to continue un- like something that I understand in some ways. I think that's interesting. Not only do you fall into stuff, but you also fall out of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think again, when we first met, I was working at a program called the Crawford House, which again was much more like social work mm-hmm. than it was about therapy. And social work is systems and helping people navigate yeah. things, but it's and, and for social workers listening, it's not just surface level stuff, but you really don't, you know, you, you don't get to the root causes of the problems. Mm-hmm. And is that how you felt with working in social work with DHS, that you were always coming after the crisis or after the problem and mm-hmm. therapy helps you get before the problem? Yes. It was that wanting to help people out of the situation, but sustained out, right? So sometimes with social work, you felt, I felt that it was band-aids at times that you would help for a year and you would create the safety environment for a year, but then it wouldn't stay like that because you weren't able to provide that therapy aspect of it. And I just felt a calling to be able to do that. And so it was like falling out of that, like you said, and falling into this other side of the helping profession. And, and again, having a military family background, um, you know, my father was in Vietnam and, and uncles and things like that. And it was more of a veteran background, not necessarily a military background. But obviously here in the community, you, you know, you were in DHS here in the community. There's a lot of veterans. So therefore, there is going to be a lot of, of military families or veteran families mm-hmm. in the DHS system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was as much a combination of your background and the environment. Yeah. I think it was that find like being able to identify with the families that I ended up working with in a certain program with the Family Treatment Drug Court, and yeah, just noticing that a lot of the substance abuse families and how the military kind of went kind of connected in some ways. Um, growing up, kind of like you said in a military family, but obviously in the eighties growing up in a military family, it was like peacetime and it was very mm-hmm. nice. Um, and it was an air force family. So it was just different, but understanding that dynamic of like the military family system and then seeing that play out in a very different way of veterans and not really, I mean, that was an eye opening kind of change of understanding like the veteran community and seeing that through 
the trajectory of the last 20 years of my and, career. And I think that's interesting. As you said, you started working in DHS, you know, after 9-11 and, mm-hmm. and probably three or four years in, a lot of the stress that you were seeing in DHS was related to uh, guys and gals coming back from deployments, exactly. um, which, which had to be different for that mm-hmm. system than it would have been even 10 years earlier. For, definitely. I think it was that not knowing how that would all play out and affect the family system and the community and addiction and everything. But seeing that a couple years later, the, the the constant deployments and the, you know, the families being here left behind and it just, it was a different war than anybody ever experienced. Um, yeah, so you did start to see that play out a lot after about three or four years that I was working at DHS and then how that shifted into I really want to do therapy mm. and seeing that play out from the military dependent or the wife family aspect of it but the little kids but then also the teenage kids and just seeing how all of that changed the family system when that started happening yeah I think that's it's really critical I mean if we think about stages of change um, you know a, a five or a seven year old whose father has been deployed you know, and, you know, you know this, but, you know, my kids were in kindergarten and first grade when I started deploying. They were in high school when I stopped deploying. Right. Or, yeah. or approaching high school. Right. So as they have different responses at different ages, um, you know, a 14 a, a year old in a family in a father's first deployment mm-hmm. and a seven year old in a family in the father's first deployment are experiencing totally different things. Yes. And the, the parent that stays behind is also experiencing different things at that time too, whether it's the first deployment or the fifth deployment, the parent is different. The parent has changed, the child has changed. And so all of that is so different. I think another interesting impact that that could have been, and correct me if, if, if I'm wrong or verify if it's true, but military's young families, like majority of the families are married by the time they're 25. I know I was right. Um, And and when I was in Fort Bragg, I had a, one of my soldiers was 20 years old and he and his wife who was 19 had two kids already. Right. And so really, really young families that don't have a lot of, of, of stability or understanding the one primary parent goes away, they're deployed. And now you have uh, a situation here where people may not have the skills they need to get their needs met. Yeah. And especially if you think about what that looked like in 03 or 04 with nobody knew what those needs may have been at the time. And then now they can kind of wrap their head around it a little easier or a little differently maybe. But you're right. It's that learning how to grow up. Like most of us aren't really all that mature until we're 25, 30 years old. And then we're expecting these 19 year olds to have the skills to be able to emotionally cope but then also do it without family around you know maybe hundreds and thousands of miles away and doing it alone and that's a scary thing and so I think as as a social worker you were able to help in a different way but I think as a therapist you can even now like with a lot of the younger families that come in able to provide them that support and that safety net of just listening and helping them connect and get connected in the community even. I think that's another important aspect of military families is the idea of um, 
being separated from their family of origin, mm-hmm. right? You know, my, when my wife and I got married, right? You know, she's from Tennessee, and you know, mm-hmm. five, six states away. And people that are stationed here don't have that support that, you know, my family, you know, 14 brothers and sisters, everybody lives 90 miles away from each other within a 90 mile radius. Like nobody ever moved out of uh-huh. my town except for me and, and a couple others. And so not having that family support is is an aspect that maybe a lot of mm-hmm. people aren't really familiar with when it comes to military spouses and children. Yeah, it's hard to be alone in a new city. And oftentimes, I mean, in this community, it's a much bigger city than I think a lot of people might experience beforehand. But yeah, just being alone and not having that, any kind of support system, and then being thrown into a community where, you know, how much effort do you put into this support system? Because of how long is it going to last? Mm-hmm. And so, encur- like helping people encourage those types of connections too. And what I found is a lot of people come from you know, just small towns where they do know everybody and like they do have family around. And so it's like, how do you then make friends and like connect with people that aren't exactly like you? And that can be, you know, something to teach how to like nurture some of those connections and relationships. But I think that comes down to feeling confident enough to be able to do so in some ways. And that's very different for a 19 year old versus a 30 year old. And and I think in, in a lot of that dynamic, like, you know, grandkids aren't necessarily connected to their grandparents because they're not going over to grandma and grandpa's house every you yeah. know weekend and stuff like that. And so that's a really important aspect of, of sort of the family dynamic as it fits into mm-hmm. the military. Now, you mentioned a couple of times about substance abuse and how you'd really started working about that. And, and so I'd like to talk a little bit about substance abuse in the military and veteran population. Uh, addiction and substance abuse is a problem everywhere, right? But especially mm-hmm. for those who served. And it might be changing a little bit, but historically, like, you know, drunk as a sailor is a thing yeah. for a reason, right? It's, it, the military is a really drinking culture, work hard, play hard, but also mm-hmm. the opioid epidemic in the veteran population started in the military. Yeah. So that's one of the things that you've specifically started working early in your career was around mm-hmm. substance abuse and how it tied to the military. Yeah. When I first started my career with DHS, it was a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot of, I mean, it was in general the community, but we did have military families that were struggling with addiction. And sometimes it was the veteran or the active duty member. Sometimes it was the wife. And I think it was, you know, they would have access. And it was a different, I think prescribers prescribed differently at that time. They you know, the opiate ep- epidemic maybe wasn't what it was then as it is now, I guess is the best way to put it. And so it was more freely given. And what I saw initially was a lot of the um, military wives struggling with it, mm-hmm. whether it was opiates or benzos, um, which was a way to get through Mother's the little stress yeah. of the deployments mm-hmm. and being alone and the fear and I mean, that had to have been very scary. And then not knowing what to do, I think they just kind of handed it, I shouldn't say handed it out, but that's what it felt like. It was this being handed out. And so the the problem, like the outcome of that years later was you have, you know, veterans who are addicted and families that are struggling with that dynamic of the substance abuse family as well. Um, I do think it is different now as far as the prescription drugs go. I 
I don't know if the alcohol part has changed. I don't really think it has from what I can tell. Um, I think that there's almost a more of a culture of drinking now. Mm-hmm. It's just more accepted. And so it's like the drunk as a sail- sailor saying might not as be as accurate as like people just drink. And, you know, they go to the breweries and, you know, even the substance abuse in with women, I think right now is even more of a concern. Um, and I think that's just the culture of like social media culture and so yeah, re- recording themselves drinking yeah, and like, like dancing um, around know, on TikTok with mommy, their alcohol. Mommy wine mugs or, and, and not exactly. to be dismissive, yeah. but yeah, just a very open and permissive, yeah. just general. So I think it has become, I don't think it's become, I think it's almost the same, but it's just kind of different in some ways too. I remember sense. when I first uh, enlisted and I was in Germany and there was always the the two beer lunch, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this was in the 90s, right? And and so it was the idea of as long as you didn't drink more than a beer or two at lunch, mm-hmm. it was okay, right? That was sort of the military. And I remember, and, and, and it had changed over time. But again, looking at 9-11 being that delineating mm-hmm. point, um, the reasons for drinking after 9-11 were very, very different, right? You yeah. know, um, before, and, and yes, the military was a, you know, dangerous, but it was, we drank to enjoy ourselves or you mm-hmm. drank to celebrate or you drank to, you know, say farewell. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas later it became, drinking became a way to cope with mm-hmm. things that weren't addressed. Yeah. And I think it's that not having the education, like teaching people how to cope differently. And so it continued to become drinking is just a way to cope and as a way to let let loose and let go and that teaching people to do that differently whether like whatever that looks like for people um what i see i was talking about it earlier today with some people and that you know they both are still struggling veterans still struggling with alcohol and that culture of like when they're with their buddies it's harder Mm -hmm. to not go to it excess and so i think it is that continued just the the excess drinking versus what others might call like the normal normal social drinking and yeah just learning other ways to cope i I think in in when we are talking about excess drinking but even just to put a a a point on it i've had veterans say that i can't sleep unless i have a six pack a night Mm -hmm. like excessive excessive like you know a handle of jack like i mean more than just having a drink or two um but like some significantly excess uh, excessive consumption Mm -hmm. um having a drink is fine that's fine but it's when it gets too much is when it gets too much when it becomes more of a problem yeah and I think it's helping identify, helping them identify when that becomes a problem and when they're ready to change it. Um, I think that often goes with, you know, when they're tra- transitioning out to, you know, if they're set up successfully to do so, sometimes that can be a little smoother. And I think that sometimes they're, if I feel like for a couple of years there, it was that the drinking and the video gaming kind of went hand in hand is what I was seeing. And that Mm. was just a real big struggle. So when we talk about addiction, it's about the substance abuse too, but I think it is, we forget that the gaming part of that might be connected and 
sometimes just as damaging to the family unit. Process addictions, yeah. right? I mean, and this is in, in a, I'd love to touch on that a little bit because when people think about it, and I stopped using the term substance abuse broadened mm-hmm. to addiction because I started saying seeing the same thing. So mm-hmm. um, if you could talk us through process addictions a little bit and what that might be different than sort of substance addiction. The video gaming and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's, yeah, the losing reality. So whatever we might choose to have like, alter our reality a little bit and so that's what video games might do it's what gambling might do um it's just altering our reality and that's what you want to do if you're really struggling with ptsd if you're really struggling with anxiety depression you don't want to be in that reality and so we want to change that reality and with alcohol i mean there's more of a or any kind of like the substances it feels like there's that immediate consequence in some ways. And with the process addictions, it's different. But it's that I need to come home and instead of opening a beer, I'm going to come home, I'm going to sit in the recliner and I'm going to play my video game for a while. It's still that altering the reality. So it comes back down to what are we going to learn in order to not, you know, change our reality and not deal with what's in front of us. The unfortunate thing, and I'd love to hear uh, your point of view from an addiction counselor, um, is that unfortunately it works in the short mm-hmm. term, right? The drinking calms you down. The the benzos get gets the spouse through the deployment. Mm-hmm. The you know you do get to escape that, so it works very very well in the short term, and it does what you need it to do. Mm-hmm. But it's ultimately even more destructive in the long term. But it's sort of a, a short sightedness, not a deliberate short sightedness, but. I, you know, eat and drink for tomorrow we die kind of thing. Yeah. I think it is that immediate gratification type of thing. You're right. It works very well. And yeah, the short term versus long term consequence of that. And so it's helping people find skills and find ways to change that where it's not as an immediate gratification of altering that, but something that's much slower. And that's hard for people because it does work. But the long-term consequence of losing relationship and losing Mm -hmm. job and losing health, and we have to remember what those long-term consequences are. And with addiction and any kind of process addiction, substance abuse addiction, there's always that long-term consequence. And and ultimately that cycle, right? Because that long-term consequence then leads to immediate gratification, um, only now I'm farther away than I was before. Um, that uh, that can really be challenging. And, and ultimately, I think this is one of the things that there's been a lot of focus, yes, on PTSD and TBI in mm-hmm. the, the, the past 20 years, so to speak, mm-hmm. but definitely the addiction piece. I've, I've always mm-hmm. seen that if if someone has the ability to have their, their substance use or addiction, so to speak, under control and strong relationships, mm-hmm. they can manage the rest of it. Yeah. But if the substances and the relationships are bad, it's it, it fuel on the fire. Yeah, it's hard to manage life mm-hmm. if you're not, yeah, you're struggling with the substances and then that, you know, will often lead to then struggling with your relationship and how you're managing that. And especially if one person is not struggling with the addiction and the other person is, I mean, that's one set of the problem. And then the other set of problem is like when they're both struggling with addiction, mm-hmm. might be different addictions, but it's also what I see being addressed in military families 
still. Yeah, very, very complex. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with Shannon Kelly from the Family Care Center. So as you talked about, you also work with family members of service members and having come from that background yourself, mm-hmm. I'd like to hear about some of the unique challenges um, about, you know, maybe teens or children or, or military spouses separate from um, service members and veterans that you might have come across as a therapist. When I was reading this question, I wrote down a couple words because I was trying to think of, okay, what am I seeing right now with people that I'm in therapy with? Um, And a lot of that, what I'm finding is the idea of attachment in the family system, um, support systems, and then seeing how the families also, not just like the military member, but the family members address and like cope with the transition out of the military Mm. um i was you know just that somebody saying recently that the age of preparing for a deployment with much older children it feels so different because it's just a different time of life and that feels so much more stressful um so i feel like it's still a lot of the helping families like address some of like preparing for any kind of change that's happening whether it's dad leaving mom leaving what i've found recently too and i was that two active duty members one person gets out the other person stays in how that dynamic is so Mm -hmm. different too Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think that with the family members and i see a lot of the teenagers Mm -hmm. and so it, it is an interesting you know, just observation of just, you know, sitting with these families and listening to the teenagers, especially the teenage girls who've basically had their entire life of their family member being deployed pretty regularly, just hearing them and sitting with them, listening to them change and cope and kind of I guess like blossom into life or right. launch from the pad kind of thing, you know? I think that in, and so going back to attachment, I think that would be something that would be interesting to have a little bit of a conversation around. Um, I think of my kids are 18 months apart, but there was a period there in which I missed my son's birthday three years in a row. Hmm. Always there for my, cause my deployment cycle was I'd, I'd be back December, January for my daughter's birthday, but then I'd be gone again the following summer. Right. Yeah. And so this this attachment between parents and children either mm-hmm. if it's done at a young very young age as mm-hmm. in a parent leaves immediately after a child is born or mm-hmm. attachment in some of these more critical ages of development such as 11 12 13 yeah i think it's how they can prepare for it and what the the stay the stay back parent um un- understands about that type of stuff too because so you're right the attachment of attaching to your baby and your child um, and how that looks different. And I think that what I have found is that it's those, I don't know, I feel like right now I have a lot of families that are in those like school age Mm -hmm. years Mm -hmm. and how important that is because I think there's so much change that happens that sometimes the, you know, the parent comes back and not, uh, not understanding how to address the child development of if you're, if somebody comes home and they're struggling with their emotion regulation and then you have a toddler who's struggling with their emotion regulation, how mm-hmm. do you understand that and, you know, attach to your child when you're just 
really having a difficult time even being around them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that is different for every age group. You know, adolescents are hard. (laughs) Like when you, when you're not in a military family, you know, sometimes adolescents are pretty hard to be around. And so, and then having that where sometimes they don't look at dad, let's say who's been gone, you know, all every other year or, you know, we say gone, it's like there's trainings and all that type of stuff too, Mm -hmm. that they don't see them as a disciplinary and, or they come back into the home and they're like, "Ah, why do I have to listen to you? Mm -hmm. You're never here. So I think it just goes into that struggling with attachment, but then seeing that with adult relationships and forming relationships in your adolescent years. Um, Because if you struggle to form that in your family unit, you might do that in an unhealthy way Mm -hmm. come adolescence. And so really helping families understand that and talk through that. And I'm, that's occurring right now. And I'm, it's kind of on my mind a lot lately because of the amount of adolescence I have right now, my day to day. So it just comes up a lot more. And then there's that unique aspect of, you know, military kids aren't from anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Again, you know, they, they know, they remember coming here to Colorado Springs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my kids knew that, I mean, they were born in Germany. They're not mm-hmm. from Germany. They know that they're not from Maryland, right? They don't, they don't belong anywhere. And so yeah. these are the things that the kids they're going to school mm-hmm. with in a city as large as Colorado Springs, somebody mm-hmm. can point to and say, I was born here, I'm from here, yeah. and I moved there, which is another aspect of being disconnected and, and sort of... Uh, disattached right and not knowing where to like form that next attachment and what Mm -hmm. i found recently is that a lot of adolescents who are getting ready to graduate high school and figure out where they're going to go to college but then where's dad going to be next year Mm -hmm. where's dad going to be stationed next year where are we from that i don't know where to land myself because i'm going to be alone again or Mm -hmm. that fear of being alone um, cause your, you know, dad was able to stay in Colorado Springs until your senior year, but they're leaving. Mm-hmm. You don't know where they're going, but you need to figure out where you're, where you're going to go to college. And I find like, that's an interesting conversation to have with people too. Cause it is that like, you're not from anywhere, you know, do you go to where grandma lives? Maybe, but <laughs> you know, you don't, you can't like hope that dad gets stationed this one place and then you apply for colleges there. So it is that just like not really belonging anywhere mm-hmm. or feeling like you're connected, you know, with the same people throughout your entire schooling, you know. And so a lot of them fall back mm-hmm. on what they know. And this is how the military has, has mm-hmm. tended to become a multi-generational family business mm-hmm. where, well, what I am familiar with is the BX and the PX and the bowling alley on posts and stuff like that. So I'm just mm-hmm. going to join the military coming with perhaps if I had adverse childhood mm-hmm. experiences, but now I'm just, I'm, I'm perpetuating a positive cycle possibly, yeah. but also possibly a negative one. I, it's interesting that you say that because I do think that that happens a lot. I haven't seen it because I think I see a lot more adolescent girls and adolescent boys. Mm-hmm. So I don't see that um, generational thing happening as often. But I, when I do talk to the veteran, like the parent, they're almost so please don't do that generational mm, right. thing because yeah. it's almost fearful of that. 
I think that, in, and again, that may be changing. It's very interesting mm-hmm. you say that because I, I, I would not recommend that my daughter join the military today, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously things are changing, but also having just experienced mm-hmm. the past 20 years mm-hmm. of conflict, I think that current era, maybe this was a, a Vietnam to the Gen X generational shift that mm-hmm. that happened a lot but uh, and i was a recruiter probably about the same time that you were um in in dhs and i was seeing that a lot of of kids of military families joining the military yes i think i would imagine and i don't know what the research says but i would imagine that during that time frame of that like 01 to i don't know i would say maybe like 2010 that there's a lot more of that happening and i almost wonder now and i don't have any basis of this that like if that's not happening as often because of just the length of Mm. what's happened over the last 20 years and that fear of that continued cycle happening yeah that idea of you know i I had five or six deployments okay that's a badge of honor for me but that's not a life i want for my kids yeah Yeah. and the kids realizing i never saw my dad Mm -hmm. and if i want to have a family do i want to continue that um and even realizing and seeing observing what their parent went through mm-hmm. and seeing their parent as a veteran struggling with you know not everybody is but anger and the transition into the workforce and how that all looks and as you're about to like enter into the world as an adult seeing your parent really struggle with that might really change how you look at and, and I think, and, and even physical, right? You know, because I was talking, having a conversation with my daughter over the weekend, and I said, hey, you remember that time I hurt myself? And she was like, which time? Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, she was like, she remembers, you know, injury in Iraq and, and you know, all of the different times. And, mm-hmm. and we were, t- and so I think that that's a, but also if it's not that life that I'm going to choose, then there's that question mark, what's on the other side of the equation that can be challenging for young men and women. Yeah. What do I do? Yeah, Yeah, because I don't know what that next step is. And it's always been kind of told to me. And now I have Mm -hmm. to decide for myself, you know. And it's that when they don't have the attachment to the community, like you were saying, their attachment is to their family unit because that is almost gets very tight because you've gone all over the world together. And so it's that I'm just going to stick with you because you're what I know. Mm -hmm. And... So that launching from there can be difficult too. Yeah, absolutely. And so in, in, in a lot of your work with the adolescents, so you're part of a team mm-hmm. at the Family Care Center provides a particular type of therapy, mm-hmm. therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, this is a type of therapeutic modality that has a broad range of application, but you and I have both mm-hmm. seen that it's actually worked well. I, I see it work great for, for anger management, emotion regulation for veterans in the veteran court, but also you work with a lot of teens. Yeah, what I was thinking of when I looked at this was the what DBT is. So it's that distress tolerance, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness, and mindfulness. And so it helps with what I have found is as I'm teaching it to the adolescents, it's almost, I'm like, hey, this is a great opportunity. Like, bring your parents in and let's, like, help because it's the same thing their, their parents need, especially if there's a P, like somebody with P, PTSD in the household. Like, let's really teach them 
distress tolerance mm-hmm. and emotion the, regulation. The parent needs to learn how to tolerate their own distress, right, to regulate yes. their emotions, but also the family needs to learn to tolerate the distress that comes from a lack of the distress tolerance of the parent. Yes, and so mm-hmm. if the entire family can use the same language, mm-hmm. like, hey, let's take, you know, let's do a breather, you know, what skill are you going to use so that we can come back together and manage this emotion? And whether that's with the parents and or as the couple, or that's with the child in the family, it's everybody can learn that same common language. So it doesn't become like, this is your problem. You're mm-hmm. the angry one. You're the angry teenager. You're the angry dad. Um, and what I found is that, you know, teaching dear man, you know, I think for anybody is very effective. Mm-hmm. And I remember teaching, like, when I first started working with, like, when I first started at the Family Care Center and teaching Dear Man to some, some young active duty in the PHP program, and they're like, wow, this is great. Mm-hmm. I went home and I Dear Manned my wife. And it, you know, it wasn't always being used exactly how you were hoping it was used, but they learned it. And I think it's teaching that the language to use some very healthy communication skills. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that doesn't always, we don't grow up with that. The military doesn't always foster that necessarily. And so helping teach that now. And what I found is even teaching some of the veterans I have using the adolescent um, model of it, which is all the same stuff, but it just makes it easier to understand in some Mm -hmm. ways. And it's like, this is what we need to do. If we're feeling distress, you know, and the idea of coping ahead. So when we have kids need to cope ahead, I'm really stressed. I'm stressed about this test. I'm stressed about having this conversation with the teacher. But then if we think about it in the PTSD mindset of let's cope ahead, we're going to go to this festival. We're going to go to this restaurant. How can we cope ahead for this? And that is all DBT skills. And so it has been a good way to just help families overall learn how to communicate and just regulate their emotions in the mm-hmm. household. And there's a neurological basis for this, right? I mean, this is the brain functions this way. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know, I, I, I had a conversation with a veteran one time whose kid wanted to know, well, if I drop the milk in front of you, mm-hmm. you're fine. But if I drop the milk behind you, you freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one is I saw it. I know what it is. I prepared for it. The mm-hmm. other is it surprised me. And so this is like the brain, the amygdala yes. amplified the um, uh, the surprise yes. uh, and, and the distress and that caused all of the, the different stuff. And like you said, coping ahead, if I know that something's going to happen or if I can put a name to it, mm-hmm. that can help us calm those regions of our brain that are a little bit out of control. A little bit more activated. Yeah. Yeah. I think helping in that idea of coping ahead, like knowing that this could be something that happens, you know, when it when the milk is dropped behind me, how can you best then help me in that moment? And that's also that cope ahead of, you know, this is this is what might happen. And so then everybody can handle that situation differently. And so yeah, it's just helping the whole family learn about even teaching them about the amygdala and teaching them about like how traumatic memories get processed in our brains. And that can just help the family have some like grace for each other in some ways too. I think a lot of people and, and veterans perhaps even especially think that um, therapy, you know, 
Tony Soprano or Freud on the couch or something mm. like that, right? If you're a male therapist, you got to, well, I got to go tea, but you know, you got <laughs> patches on the elbows or if you're a female therapist, but, but DBT is not what people typically think of as therapy. This is, it's training, it's learning skills. It's, it's actually like education. Yes, it's very much education and it's learning how, learning very spe- specific skills in order to just function better in life. And sometimes that can then help you deal with the other part of therapy, right? So if we start off with DBT, we have all the skills that we're going to need to then be able to address the trauma. Mm -hmm. It's hard to address trauma when you don't have those resources and the skills available to you. Then what do you do when you're – that's some hard stuff to talk about. And so when we're in that Freud couch situation or the – you know, Tony Soprano situation, like you need to have the skills in order to yeah. talk about that stuff. Um, and so it's just a good way to start doing that. So oftentimes before EMDR, sometimes it's like, let's, you know, maybe not do DBT the entire program, this but let's learn some very skills. specific skills yeah. so that this other stuff can be a little easier. Yeah. And, and I think that's very helpful. I, I've seen it where, and you've been in my office, right? It looks like a retired first sergeant's office, but a veteran will come in. Number one, by the time they're reaching out to us, they're ready to talk, right? Mm-hmm. They said that whatever, either I see my life going down a path or my life is at a place where I need to change. Mm-hmm. And they'll come in and then they'll just want to tell us about the worst day of their lives in the first day in. Yeah. And we have to tell them to back off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's help you get some skills around regulating your emotion. Then we'll get to that hard stuff. Yeah. And so it is hard sometimes because when they're ready to talk, they want to talk. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, let's back up. I had somebody earlier today say, when are we going to start that EMDR? <laughs> I was like, okay, let's like, let's make a plan, but we need to make sure we know what we're doing with the EMDR. You know, that's, yeah, they just need to have the skills to be able to un- unpack everything. But it is awesome when they come in and they're just ready to talk. And I think for you, that might look different than for me. Mm-hmm. My office does not look like a retired first sergeant's office, and so they sometimes have to like feel that out a little bit. So, which is cool because then they can build that r- rapport and trust a little bit, mm-hmm. which might look different with how I build that than with you because of what you know that you're the coins and mm-hmm. the wall. So. No, and, and I think that it, it, it can be very effective either way, um, yeah. but I absolutely do think that uh, DBT, I, I believe in it, and, and for parents and for children, I think it's really, really beneficial. Any uh, final thoughts? I think be open to therapy if you're a military family. Mm-hmm. I think DBT is a great resource for families, whether it's young children, adolescents, or parents. And oftentimes we can work with the entire family. Yeah. No. Sometimes I have to dust it off myself. Thank you for coming on the show today. (laughs) Thank you. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Shannon. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you would drop us an email at militarymind@fccsprings.com. For this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a bit about Operation Homefront. Operation Homefront is a national nonprofit serving America's military families. Founded in 2002 in the wake of the September 11th terrorist attacks, Operation Homefront's mission is to build strong, stable, and secure military families so they thrive in communities they've worked so hard to protect. 
When military and veteran families encounter financial challenges, they turn to Operation Homefront for support. 90% of Operation Homefront's expenditures go directly to programs to help military families. Programs like Operation Homefront's Critical Financial Assistance Program, which, since 2011, has provided more than $31 million in financial assistance, fulfilling over 47,000 requests from more than 18,000 families. The most common requests are for food and groceries, rent or mortgage, and utilities. Operation Homefront aims to fulfill its 50,000th request for financial assistance, providing military families with over $35 million in financial relief by the end of 2022. Operation Homefront maintains transitional housing villages in San Diego, San Antonio, and the Washington, D.C. area to help wounded, ill, and injured warriors and their families begin their transitions from military to civilian life. Since 2008, the villages have housed more than 600 military families, providing them with nearly 5,800 months of rent and utilities-free housing, saving them nearly $6.8 million. Operation Homefront's Permanent Homes for Veterans, formerly known as Homes on the Homefront, offers military families the foundation for long-term stability and resiliency and has awarded more than 600 families with permanent housing, providing more than $91 million in deeded value since 2012. In addition to housing and financial assistance, Operation Homefront offers recurring family support for families who need additional assistance throughout the year. With frequent deployments and relocations, many service members and their families face financial and emotional challenges. All too often, service members who already live frugal lives find themselves struggling to make ends meet, especially at the end of the year. Many are unable to simply provide a holiday meal for their family. Operation Homefront's Holiday Meals for Military primarily helps junior enlisted families, grades E1 through E6, celebrate the holidays by providing them the ingredients for a traditional holiday meal. Thanks to supportive partners like Cracker Barrel Old Country Store, Chobani, Procter & Gamble, Bob Hope Legacy, the Albertsons Foundation, and many more, this program can support thousands of service members and their families at a time when they are often far away from home. Last year, Operation Homefront reached a major milestone through its Holiday Meals for Military program, providing its 120,000th holiday meal to military families across the country and serving its 500,000th individual military family member since the program began in 2010. This July, Operation Homefront's Back to School Brigade will return to communities across America. This summer program has provided more than 425,000 backpacks to military families across the country. This year, they plan to provide 25,000 more backpacks with school supplies to military children, saving families more than $50 million in back-to-school expenses since 2008. Taking place throughout the year, Operation Homefront's Star-Spangled Babies baby showers primarily help junior enlisted military families, again, grades E1 through E6, by providing critical baby supplies to the families. Due to the generosity of P&G and local partners, this program allows Operation Homefront to help these growing families who are often balancing the excitement of a new baby with the hurdle of a tight budget. Since 2008, Operation Homefront has provided critical baby supplies to nearly 19,000 military new and expecting mothers. Operation Homefront also treats military spouses to a catered dinner with Homefront celebrations. This event encourages spouses to connect with others in their community to strengthen their networks as well as the bonds between one another. To further their commitment to helping service members, veterans, and their families reach their educational goals, Southern New Hampshire University proudly awards a full tuition scholarship to a deserving military spouse.
The Military Child of the Year program is one of Operation Homefront's annual recurring support programs. Operation Homefront is about the military family because it's not just the service member who makes the sacrifice. And throughout the difficult situations that these families endure, the children are often forced to find resiliency, and in the cases of these eight different children each year, they go above and beyond themselves or their family unit, and they make great impact on their community. The Military Child of the Year Awards recognize the recipients for their resiliency, leadership, and achievement during their parents' service. Each recipient receives a trip to Washington, D.C. with a parent or guardian for the awards gala, a laptop, and a cash award of $10,000. For a military family, so much of military life is about being strong. Strong when their loved ones deploy, strong when they relocate, and strong when they start over and transition into civilian communities. The Start Strong, Stay Strong campaign is designed to inspire military families to know that their community supports them, to help them feel empowered, find real hope, and provide tangible solutions to meet their families' specific needs throughout their service. Funded by PNG and local partners including Infinity Systems, Johnstone Supply, and Safeway, and individual donors, Operation Homefront helps champion their success and create the stability, connections, and comfort that our military families deserve to start strong in their community and stay strong for their family in the process. Help Operation Homefront create impact from our military family to yours. Find out how at operationhomefront.org. There you can find out what programs are coming to your community, when to nominate a military child, and make a donation to help build strong, stable, and secure military families in your community. So I appreciate you taking the time to check out the Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week. If you want to find out more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. And if you'd like to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find more about them at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They prioritize you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you might have or what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send us an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on this episode brings up concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean.
Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best-in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family.